0: All right, let's open up our Bibles to the uh, book of 2 Samuel as we find ourselves here in chapter 3 this evening. What we have in chapter 3 is that we've got this civil war that's continuing between Israel in the north and Israel in the south. You remember that the Lord, when Israel cried out for the king, the Lord said, look, you're not going to want a king. I'm going to tell you that. But they just insisted, no, we want a king. And so the Lord allowed them to have a king, and sure enough, Saul comes along. He's their first king, and what a disaster his reign was, and so he's been taken out of the way. And now for the last, what, 15, 20 years, David has been chased as a felon from you know, one end of Israel to another, and now the false king has been taken out of the way, and it would appear that the path to the throne is now thrown wide open uh, to David. But it's interesting that only Judah in the south, that was the only tribe that initially embraced David and made him king. So you've got now Abner. He is in the north, and he is over the northern army, and he is supporting King Saul's only son that's left, a guy by the name of ish and he's propping him up. And so now David is in the south, and Abner is in the north, and now we read the details of how this civil war is going to come to an end, and it's going to come kind of to a, a peaceful resolution, if you will. So beginning in verse 1, we read this of chapter 3. Now, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Now we need to ask ourselves, why why is there this long conflict? I mean, after all, David was the guy. It's well documented. It was God's will for David to be the next king of Israel. So what's the delay? Why is it so hard? Why is the will of God seeming to be as difficult as pulling eye teeth here? Why is it taking so long? Now, you remember that David, he is in Hebron. The Lord said, you go to Hebron. And there in Hebron, Judah Judah, uh, made him king. And he's king over Judah for seven and a half years. Now, eventually, they will capture Jerusalem. Jerusalem is still being held by the Jebusites. When all of Israel acknowledges David as king, Jerusalem will fall. And there's going to be some spiritual lessons for us to learn when we get to chapter 5 and, uh, and, and so forth. And from Jerusalem, he will reign for 33 years. So he reigns over 40 years as king. But what is taking so long? Now, Arthur Pink. He said once, he said that when you come to a mystery in Scripture, you got to question, well, why, why this? And why, why did it work out that way? Why didn't it work out this way? And you got these mysteries that you're trying to figure out. He said, usually, if you look carefully in the text, that God will hang the key that unlocks the mystery right there on the very door that you're staring at. And usually you just look at the very text that seems to mystify you if you'll just study that text, it'll probably give you insight to the answer to this, to this mystery. So here's, here's David now. What, what's going on in David's life that is causing the will of God to be so slow to materialize? Well, you'll notice now, beginning in verse 2 and 3 and 4, that we are giving, we're given a list of David's sons. Now, you'll notice that, first of all, in verse 2, we've got Amnon, and he was the son of Ahinoam. Then you'll notice in verse 3, we've got Chiliab, and he was the son of Abigail. Now you remember that David, his first wife was Michael. She's going to come back into the picture here in just a moment. And you remember that she was taken from David by King Saul. And then he married Ahinoam and Abigail. So these are wives two and three. Then I want you to notice in verse 3 that we've got Absalom and what a fascinating guy this guy is, is going to be. And he was the son of Macha. And then in verse 4, we've got uh, Adonijah. He was the son of Hagia. And then in verse 4, we've got uh, Shaphatiah. And he was, the, he was the son of uh, Abital. And then in verse 5, we've got Ithrim. And, uh, he, and he came by David's wife, uh, by Eglah. Now, unfortunately, David is just getting started because when we look at uh, the lineage of David uh, that you see to the right now uh, of this, he ends up with eight wives and 19 sons, and uh, that doesn't even include uh, the, you know, the concubines uh, that he had. This is clearly a man who has a problem. I mean, you, you think about this. Imagine that you've got a buddy who, in very quick order, has six children, with six different women, or imagine that you've got a girlfriend that has six guys or six babies with six different guys. I mean, would you not think to yourself, uh, "This is not a, a plan for success." I mean, this is this is not a good road that you are on. You have to remember that David is chained to a lunatic, and the lunatic is his own libido. And it is going to haunt this man through the remainder of his life. And you'll see guys like this, that they have got a real serious problem that they will not allow to be crucified in their life and to have God heal them from this disaster of a sex drive of theirs. And how many people's lives are ruined because of their unwillingness to put this wild libido to death. And what we have to understand is that when the New Testament speaks of these men in the Old Testament, they're not lifting up their morality. They're not, the the New Testament is not saying, oh, you know, Abraham, real moral guy. David, he was a, a real moral guy. No, that's not what the New Testament talks about. It doesn't talk about their morality. It talks about their faith right? and uh, In the book of Romans, in chapter 4, Paul says of Abraham, Abraham believed God, and it was accredited unto him for his righteousness. This is what the Bible is celebrating. Not that this was a moral man, but that this was a man who believed God. And then just a couple of verses later, we have Paul writing about David, just as David also described the blessedness of a man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those who whose lawless deeds are forgiven. David had lawless deeds. The law said, don't multiply wives. The law said for a king that he was not to multiply wives. Almost right out of the chute. What is David doing? He's doing the very thing that the law told him not to do. And yet David went on, and whose sins are covered. Now look, Hopefully, you, after you've come to faith, is a more moral person than you uh, before faith, right? We, we have this understanding that, look, kind of like you go to the book of James, right? That there needs to be a, a little bit of action uh, to these words that we're saying concerning faith. But we have to understand that these guys in the Old Testament, just as men and women today, we've got our struggles And we've got our shortcomings. And we are not saved because we do everything right. We are saved because we are trusting in Christ. And that process of sanctification, that process of God making us practically uh, holy in practical ways is a slow process. You know as well as I do, we change so very slowly. But hopefully God is at work in each of our lives and we're changing and we're heading into the right direction. And so here is David living contrary to the law of God. Could it be that God was allowing this process to drag on and on and on so that David might pause and take a good look at his life? Am I doing something right now that is hindering the will of God from coming to pass? It doesn't really appear that he had that conversation with himself. No, he's he's living in a in a a wrong way, and of course now all of these sons, all of these sons, they're going to grow up to be bandits. They're going to grow up to be horrible people. Not one of these sons was worth a hill of beans. This home, imagine how much insecurity you would have. Imagine if your dad had eight wives. Imagine if you got 19, you know, or 18 brothers running around the place. How much time is your dad really going to be able to spend with you? I mean, how how much insecurity and jealousy had to be going on in the house of David? You have to understand, David's life was miserable. David, his home life, he was a horrible father. He was a horrible husband. He could write some worship music, right? But when it came to practical stuff in his home, he had a terrible struggle. And so look, when dad isn't living it, it shouldn't be any surprise to us that the kids are going to be struggling with them being able to live it um, as well. So we've got now Abner in the north. He's over the northern armies. Now, for whatever reason, we don't know the backstory of this, but Ishbosheth accuses Abner of uh, chasing around one of the women that used to belong to his father. And that would have been an act of treason. That would essentially been Abner saying, I'm taking over the king's harem, and and I'm going to take over the king's uh, kingdom. And so he's being accused now by the son. Hey, I think you're messing around with uh, one of the gals that belonged to my father. And uh, he, of course, explodes here. You'll notice in verse 8 that Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth, And he said, Am I a dog's head? That belongs to Judah. Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and I have not delivered you into the hand of David, and you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman. May God do so to Abner and more also. If I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him. Now, notice he's kind of tipping his hand here a little bit. Notice that phrase, as the Lord had sworn to him. You see, this is an example of a person who knows the will of God, but is unwilling to submit to the will of God. This guy knows that it is the will of God for David to be king. But what did David do? David embarrassed him. David made him look bad in front of all the guys. And I believe that that root of bitterness, that anger that he held towards David, kept him from doing what God's will was. And so this is an example of a man not doing the will of God when he knew what the will of God was and then deciding to do the will of God for the wrong reason. He's more upset now with Ishbosheth than he is with David. And so because he's more angry with Saul's son than with David, he decides, okay, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to allow David. I'm going to throw my weight here uh, in support uh, of David. So what we have with, with Abner is, is really a man. He, he doesn't have uh, a strong character. Uh, this is a man with no core values. You see this in politics all the time, don't you? That's the problem with Washington. That's the problem that we have in our state houses today is that men and women, they're on the campaign trail and they're telling us, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And then as soon as they're elected into office, they then submit to big money and corporate America and the military-industrial complex and big pharma and all of it, and they sell the rest of us out because they don't have core values. And this is, this is what we see in, in Abner. It's, uh, it's interesting that he then gets a message to David, and he says, hey, let's have a covenant. Let's, let's strike a peace deal Let's bring an end to this civil war. Enough of the bloodshed already. And, uh, and let's, let's just have a face-to-face. Now, why David does this, I, I really don't know. But David says to Abner, You are not going to see my face unless you bring my first wife with you. Now, this sets up one of the most pathetic verses in all of Scripture. It's just a pathetic scene is being described for us here. And I don't know what's going on with David. Was it just a thing where it was his male ego that he just couldn't stand the idea of his first wife being with a, another guy? I mean, it just seems to me that this is one of those things where, you know, the egg is already scrambled. Just, you know, don't try and put, put it back in the shell again. I mean, she has been married to another man for at least 15 years, probably closer to 20 years at this point. And it's going to become very clear that at least her husband is really in love with her. And so here's the guy. He already has eight wives. Do you really need one more? I mean, are you lying awake at night thinking, you know what would make me really happy? If I could just have one more wife. Is that going on here? What is happening? So here we then have Abner. He goes and he grabs Michael, his first wife. And, uh, and, and now, as, as he's leading the wife, they're taking this long journey now down to Hebron. Her husband is following her. Try and capture this scene in your mind. Notice verse 16. And her husband went along with her to Bahurim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, Go, return. And he uh, return Now, clearly, this is a man who's in love with this woman. Again, imagine, you, you're, you're married to, to a woman 15, 20 years, and then the government shows up at your doorstep and just it drags her away from you. And, and you know, she's, she's, she's going to go to the king. I mean... I mean, you you talk about a bizarre event here. I I don't think that this is a a real God honoring chapter out of uh, David's life. I mean, you can just, how pathetic. You just see this guy, no doubt, saying to Abner, why? Why are you doing it? I mean, come on, man. This isn't right. This isn't fair. What what in the world are you doing? And finally, Abner, after listening to this guy for a number of miles, he says, hey, go home, boy, right now. Or very bad things are going to happen to you. And of course, Abner was a man who knew how to do very bad things to people. And so this guy turns around and no doubt just wept all, all the way home. And so then we read that they strike a deal and, uh, with David. And uh, so they've got this allegiance now where, where Abner is saying, I'm going to go to the northern army. I'm going to tell all these guys, you've got to fall in line, you're now the next king, and the whole country now is, uh, is going to be united. And so we read in verse 21 that Abner said to David, I will arise and go, and gather all of Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. And so David, he sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Now, in the meanwhile, Joab, the general for David, now comes back into town. And somebody tells him uh, that, hey, uh, Abner, funny funny thing, you just missed Abner. Now remember, last time we were together, Abner killed Joab's brother. Now remember, it was in self-defense, right? His brother, Asahel, would not back off. And you remember that Abner said to him, dude, stop chasing me or bad things are going to happen to you. And, and he just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And finally, you could make an obvious self-defense case here. This wasn't killing some guy. And, you know, it wasn't cold-blooded murder. It was self-defense. And he put Joab's brother to death. And Joab, of course, is waiting and waiting and waiting to kill this man. And now he's being told the guy that killed his brother was just here making a deal with the king. I like what Warren Wearsby said. He said, it looked as though everything was in good order for peaceful transition, but there were hidden landmines in the diplomatic field, and they were about to explode. And so what happened is, is that Joab got a messenger and said, hey, you go chase down Abner, and you tell him uh, that we got to clear up uh, some further details. And so you got to come back here, all right? And so we then notice in verse, verse 27 that when Abner had returned to Hebron, that Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately, and he stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Now, I want you to notice that he takes him now to the gate. We're going to see. Now, we talked about these three brothers. Asahel has been killed, and so we've got Joab, and we've got Abishai that is left, and these three brothers were, as we talked about last time, they were absolutely insane. They were total head cases. Joab and Abishai, they are killers uh, from the get-go. And we're going to be seeing over the next uh, couple of chapters, again, David's life, it reads like a soap opera. I mean, there are crazy stories that, that lie ahead of us. And a lot of those stories have to do with, with Joab. Joab was a general that David just couldn't uh, control. Now remember, these three boys are his nephews. These three boys were the sons of David's sister. And they are going to be a thorn in his side uh, through all of his administration. In fact, Joab is actually going to outlive live David, but then Solomon's going to take care of Joab. But Joab is just a cold-blooded murderer. And so here's a guy who is now offering uh, a, a peaceful end to the civil war, and now this idiot Joab is risking it all because of his unforgiveness, because of the vengeance, because of the bitterness that he has in his heart. Now I want you to notice that he leads him now, and this is an important point, to the gate. Now Hebron was uh, a city um, of uh, refuge. You remember that in that era they didn't have police. Uh, they, they They had a military, and they didn't really have much of a standing army. A lot of it was volunteer. They didn't have police. What they had is elders in every, every village, every city. And if you had a problem, you'd go to the elders. And the elders would, you know, they would, you know, deliberate your case. Now, when there was a murder that took place, every family, uh, they had um, a, a Bubba in it, right? Every family uh, had a killer in it. And so if somebody uh, killed Cousin Joey well, you would just call your family Bubba and uh, say, hey, this guy down the street killed Cousin Joey. You need to come and, and take care of it. And they were known as the Avenger of Blood. And so every family would sort of, they would enact justice uh, upon someone that had murdered one of their family members. Now, sometimes it's an accident, right? Sometimes it's a manslaughter. It's not first degree murder. You know, you, the ax slipped out of your hand. And it flew over and hit your buddy in the head and killed him. It was a total accident. Now, if that happened, you would run to one of these cities of refuge. And you would say, and Hebron was the city of refuge. And you would say, hey, you know, bad thing happened. I didn't really kill him. The elders of that city would carry out a, an investigation. And if they discovered that, well, yeah, there's no real clear evidence that it was murder, then you could stay in the city and the Avenger of Blood would never be able to touch you. But if you left the city, well, now the Avenger is going to get you. And so now here is Abner. He comes into this city of refuge. And what does what is, what is Joab do? But he leads him out to the gate. He's got him out of the city of refuge. And now it's open season for the Avenger of Blood. And he takes that knife and plunges it into his stomach. No doubt he. Put him in, you know stabbed him in the stomach so it'd be somewhat of a slower death, so he could watch him die. Joab was just a, a very cruel guy, and so now now david David 's got a real problem here because the guy that was negotiating a peace deal with the north has now been killed by by his chief general, if you will and so notice david he, he calls for for this morning now take take notice that we 've got three guys here we 've got david we 've got. We've got Joab and we've got Abner. All three guys could not forget the past. All three guys were in bondage to one degree or another to the past. And that's what kept them from walking really in the will of God and walking in a God-honoring way. You've got to let go of the past. And you gotta press forward, forget the past, and press forward. Pray that God delivers you from bitterness and anger and all of this, or it'll just destroy. It'll destroy everything that God wants to do in your life. And that's what's going on here. So David calls for this morning. Now notice in verse 37, for all of the people and uh, all of Israel, they understood that day that it, it, it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, uh, the son of Ner. So David, David handles this marvelously. Uh, you know the the flags are put to you know half mass and uh, they uh, they call for a national a national mourning. And so everybody in the north, okay, all right, yeah, it probably was an uncontrollable uh, general there. It wasn't the king, and so uh, the Lord is very gracious from keeping this whole mess from just uh, blowing up. Now, we see David's, of course, his real heart concerning Joab and Abishai in verse 39. He says, and I am weak today, though anointed king, right? You can, just, you can just see where he's at in his headspace here. How crazy is this? I'm weak. I'm boxed in. Joab and Abishai, I can't live with them, and I can't live without them. I mean, Joab, he will make sure that David is always on the throne. Uh, I mean, Joab was a clear and present help in David's time of need. And David understood that Joab had the complete respect of all of the military. Everybody is going to fall in line with Joab and Abishai. But notice he says, here I am, I'm weak. I can't do anything about these guys, though, though I'm king. I'm king, and yet I can't, I can't handle these generals of mine. Though anointed king. And these men, the sons of of Zeruiah, that's his sister. Notice they are too harsh for me, and the Lord shall repay the evil-doer according to his uh, wickedness. David Firth, he puts it this way: Neither Ishbosheth nor David can control their generals, with both seeing themselves as in some sense independent of their king's authority and they served the king only when their own purposes were secure. Now, we skipped over verse 18. I want to go back to verse 18 and read what Abner says to the troops in the north. Now then, do it. He's telling them to support David. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all of their enemies. Now, notice that he says, Now then, do it. Make David king. Now, I don't know if Nike got the idea from Abner or not, but Abner was the first one to use that. Now do it, all right? And, um, and, And the interesting thing about this is that he's saying, Make David king. Make David king. It's time to make David king. And once they make David king, and we're going to see some fascinating spiritual parallels in chapter 5, once they made David king, great things began to happen for the nation. And once we make our heavenly David king, great things are going to happen for us as well. Think of all of the excuses that we so oftentimes come up with on why, well, I really can't do that. I really can't submit that part of my life to the Lord. I really can't obey God in this area of my life. Think about all of the excuses that we make because we think making him Lord is going to be too costly. But what did Jesus say to the disciples? He said to them, truly I say unto you, The ones having followed me at the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you also will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for for the sake of my name will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And what he's telling us is that if we will make him Lord, and though we think, oh, it's too costly, it's too costly. I mean, how many people in the day of Jesus were thinking to themselves, I can't follow him as being the Messiah because the scribes and the Pharisees the Sadducees have already said, whoever makes him Messiah is going to get kicked out of the synagogue. I can't make him the Messiah. It's going to cost me too much. I'll lose my family. I'll, you know, I'll lose my job. And they died having their family And they died having their job, but they died without Jesus Christ, which was a far greater price to pay. And what we have to understand is that we are never the losers when we make him Lord of all. We sing all the time, Lord of all. Well, let's stop singing it, and let's start making it happen in our lives. And as we go to prayer, let's pray that God would give us the strength that we would submit those areas of our life where there is much resistance going on. And Father, we ask that as we go, that Lord, you would help us to honor you as king, that we would honor you as not just Savior, but Lord as well. And Father, that you would help us with some of these long-standing issues that have grieved your spirit, Help us, Father, to walk in victory, that we would allow your Holy Spirit to set us free by your power, that, Lord, that we would not just have a form of godliness that's denying your power, but that, Father, we would have a form of godliness that's walking in your power. Lord, set your people free to serve you, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.